This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hingson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're happy to meet Yasmin Besson-Casino from Montclair State. Yasmin has just released her new book, Hot Off the Presses, released this week, The Cost of Being a Girl from Temple University Press. And we're going to be talking about the world of girls growing up, work, gender, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, happy semester to uh, you and everyone else. Hey, some of us are on the quarter system. And uh, we will not be excluded <laughs> with your uh, semester privileging language. Yeah, it's like my Eastern time yeah. zone chauvinism. Well, I was thinking more of like the, uh, the you know, the Hanukkah next to the giant Christmas tree in the department store. You just got to give us a token homage. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I'm in such a good mood. I finished my grading. I have the winter break ahead of me. You know what it feels like? You know that feeling when your kids go to sleep at night or when the school bus goes away? <laughs> I love my kids, but like, you know, some time has been freed up to get to the other jobs that need to be done. Yeah. So, <laughs> Before we start, I just want to uh, 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 talk about some listener email that we got. Roxy Brookshire from the University of Alabama Huntsville recently wrote in response to uh, our talk of why there's so much poverty research done in the Midwest. And uh, she thinks that it has to do with big Midwestern research centers that specialize in poverty and she thinks part of the problem is that there isn't much money dedicated to studying poverty in the South, even though poverty is such a big problem there. So interesting idea. Makes sense to me. You guys? Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, uh, not to be, again, the Debbie Downer, I think also a lot of it has to do with racial politics. You mean like the lack of funding or lack of interest in poverty in the South? Yeah, because I think um, Southern states actually have a disproportionate share of, um, of, of African-Americans in them. And I think the lack of interest in poverty in Southern states historically has been linked to the fact that so much of that poverty, number one, has, has been linked to um, African-Americans and to blackness. And also number two, you know, if you look at, you know, the work of people like Anthony Marks um, talking about the history of race and poverty in the South, how it's basically better to not talk about white poverty in the South, because then you might start having these cross-racial coalitions going down, um, you know, in order to help improve uh, the, the state of, um, of the impoverished in, the, in those Southern states. So uh, do you, wh- where is the action there? Do you think it's a, like the state legislature would shut down like if there was a poverty center? And I know there has been something along, I don't know if it was a poverty center or a labor center, but there was some research center that was implicitly left-leaning uh, at UNC, I believe, that the state legislature didn't like. Or are you thinking more that it's just the, the faculty at these schools don't like it? Because there are major research universities in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not even... I'm not even linking this to specific institutions of higher education and research. I'm talking about the history of the South period and how institutions, are, you know, actually are very often 
you know, sort of sometimes prisoner to the sort of historical and sociocultural imperatives of the regions in which they're located. Not to make this a purely partisan issue, but I know that there's some explicit uh, non-fandom of the social sciences happening in the, uh, you know, in the Republican Party. And those are pretty solidly Republican districts. Who was it that tweeted out that like uh, everything is better than the so everything is greater than the social? That was uh, Ben Sass, who I normally like, but he pissed me off. And what's funny is it's not like he like hates Egghead because he's actually a pretty serious historian. He he won like a dissertation prize for his uh, history PhD. But what was the full what was the full tweet, Joe? It was just a, an equation. It was like yeah, it, well, it was part of a tweet storm. But yeah. the the particular one was like. Uh, he, Socials, no, econ greater than other social sciences. And I think he would probably consider history humanity, not a social science. Well, you like to, yeah, that it was like humanities greater than social sciences, everything greater than social <laughs> sciences. <laughs> but, oh, all right. He's not a fan of the social sciences, clearly. You think? Yeah, except econ. You know, but I, you know, it's, it's interesting though, like how much animus that's being directed towards academics in ger- general really is just as a result of like specific animus towards specific disciplines, I guess, including our own, right? That's seen as biased against conservatives or republicanism. Oh, well, we do have a lot of crap and, you know, I don't blame anybody for being biased against sociology. There's so, you know, there's plenty to be biased against. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but Gabriel, I mean, there's so much crap everywhere, right? Even in the anointed social science econ, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. But it does vary in magnitude and frequency. <laughs> you know, I, it's it's a shame that sociology has to be so closely uh, associated with like unsubstantiated, broad political attacks, as opposed to, you know, we have a very strong st- tradition in terms well, of- I, I thought we were going to hold until the candidate statements to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I feel like everything that's wrong with sociology in the ASA is because we want it that way. Yeah. And, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, the popular perception of um, sociology is people who have more opinions and knowledge half the candidate statements and half the president's, uh, you know, inaugural lectures at ASA are basically damn right. That's exactly what we want. Yeah. Well, let's hold off for that for our meet the candidates episode. Yeah. So coming attractions, everyone keep, keep subscribed on uh, iTunes and Google. Play. <laughs> it's interesting to see it with students though. I mean, it's like the students have similar biases against sociology that they kind of like the tools that we use, but not the overall theory or ideology. I, I think that's true. Although I think it's kind of bifurcated and that there's some students who think the discipline is, you know, uh, a major, well, they, they basically, there's some students who are like, Oh, this is nonsense. And, you know, if they take it at all, it's because it's required as a rec for something else or because they, you know, heard it has less math. Um, and they then, heard wrong. <laughs> and, and, yeah, well, I agree with that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, but and then there's other students where, you know, th- that they think that too, but they just think it's a good thing, right? So, you know, there's a certain uh, subset of students where they look in the catalog they don't see that there's no department of activism. And so they look for the next best thing <laughs> and they think they found it with us uh, mistakenly, I think. But um, that, that's the students who like us and the students who hate us feel the same way for the same reasons. And both of them are wrong, I think, because if you open a copy of ASR, there's basically none of that. 
Yeah. I mean, the same thing can be said of economics, too. I remember when I started studying neoliberalism, the first thing I did was take a look at the journals to find the articles that said that free markets solved everything. And not what economists say. Like You can't find that in the quarterly journal of economics. This sort of It comes out from think tanks. You guys want to talk about moon pie? Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Okay, so before we get started on it, I mean, I know what you're writing, but like when I hear moon pie, it just makes me very nostalgic for a very specific moment, which is uh, for Pete Peterson's memorial service. Uh, a lot of sociologists went to Nashville to attend that. And I remember going to Robert's Western Wear with uh, Paul DiMaggio, um, Jen Lena, and uh, Steve Tepper. And, you know, they had the recession special was advertised there. And it was a PBR fried bologna sandwich and a moon pie. I did not order that. But, uh, you know, that's like, you know, I'm from the West Coast. And, you know, I went to grad school on the East Coast. So I basically am only dimly aware that this regional delicacy of the moon pie exists. But uh, that's like the main point I associate it with is, you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, mutual friends of Pete. Uh, at his memorial service. But uh, I, I know that what you're going to talk about is a lot less uh, warm and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, yeah, first of all, is is, is, the, is that the quintessential? I don't know Tennessee. Is that the quintessential Tennessee meal? Fried Based sandwich my, and a moon pie? Well, I, I think that was slightly uh, jokey. Right. And it was like kind of like deliberately caricature. But, you know, based on my extensive experience of spending a total of six days in the great state of Tennessee, uh, I, I guess they like. Moon pies yeah, but I was. But that was the recession special, though. Right. Um, yeah. This is in like 2010. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was only a few years after the market crash. Yeah, now, now you just get a moon pie. <laughs> just for those of you who don't know, moon pie is a commercial sweets product. It's like a chocolate covered marshmallow and cookie sandwich sort of. I like how you called it a commercial sweets product. You sound like you're writing a tariff code, <laughs> like very precise and identifying categories. You can't, you can't say that it's a it's a candy or it's a cookie. You have to say it's a commercial sweets product. Like well, it's I not a cookie. Like, article and paragraph number that that's listed under. Yes, <laughs> for human oh, consumption. Yeah. <laughs> so just for those of you who don't know, Moon Pie has been all the buzz on Twitter recently because the product social media manager has taken a new tack, which is kind of being a dick to people. <laughs> it's like basically when people have started taking pot shots at the brand online and the brand account takes pot shots back. Like, for example, the best one was, it told a Twitter user, if we need social media advice from someone with two followers, we'll be in touch. <laughs> and it does things like make fun of how people spell their names. Yeah, I saw that. What were your I reactions? Saw I saw that one. Yeah. I mean, didn't you find it interesting that a corporation can do that, that it can berate their customers publicly? I mean, I was expecting if you don't like the product, you know, have a coupon and we're so sorry, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, I derive great delight, actually. And you know, I'm not on Twitter, right? But there's this thing <laughs> called Google, and you can Google Moon Pie, and it brings up some of the most interesting tweets and retweets. And um, I was totally amused. Yeah, so the the, the best uh, parody of it was uh, a Twitter user called Alex But Online. Uh, wrote a, a dialogue, uh, guy, this moon pie sucks. Customer service, 2005, we've reimbursed you in full and here's a coupon for your trouble. Customer service, 2017, get your corn cop looking ass offline before they miss you at the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, 
Well, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, these like pickup artist creeps. Right? They, they've adopted the strategy of negging, you know, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. Negging it's the like customer you, you, you feel ashamed, so you have to buy more marshmallows. <laughs> Well, I think it's a brilliant marketing move. It could have backfired spectacularly. And, and it's working because it's breaking through the clutter. I mean, I, I think I mentioned Moon Pie like three or four times on Twitter yesterday, which I never would have done. And it's it's working because it's breaking a very strong norm in marketing that you don't insult potential customers. And in transgressing that norm, you know, we block out advertising all the time and, and corporate communication, but the the sight of a consumer brand being rude to people is absolutely noteworthy and uh, people are talking about it. So number one, I don't think there's any evidence that the people that they're being rude to are actually customers. So I think it's okay. Number one, which then actually brings more traffic, right? Which then maybe will help to increase their number of actual customers. So that's number one. And number two, you know, I think although what gets the most attention on on Moon Pie seems to be, you know, the, the sarcasm and the snark. Um, there are also these like very wonderful, tender moments that you also see. Like, you know, I saw a couple where someone seemed bereft and the person responded, hey, if you want to talk offline, right, you know, we can totally do that. And, you know, and so... Well, well, like Moon Pie is counseling people now. Yeah, and so it's sort of like so. So I think so. So I think where this strategy is different is is actually in not just in negging customers or potential customers, but actually seeming human as opposed to being a corporation. Wow, that, that's very tender. Uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that in the time of dislocation and isolation that we can turn to a chocolate marshmallow for comfort. <laughs> but uh, I, I was thinking that, uh, you know, Joe was talking about like, you know, the angry brand attacking. Have you guys seen the masterful uh, social satire that is Idiocracy? No, I have not. Yes. Yes. Oh, God, it's a great movie. Um, at least it's a great premise. I know people differ on the execution, but it definitely has great stuff in it. And um, so the premise is, is that um, a, a man goes to sleep for a thousand years and wakes up in the future and <laughs> everyone in the future is a complete moron. And um, and one of the funniest things about it is like what has happened to brands. And so uh, Carl's Jr. slogan in uh, the year 3000 <laughs> is fuck you, I'm eating. Uh, <laughs> it's a gutsy move though to do that yeah. you know it, it could have completely backfired but this social media manager is going to be winning industry awards however the, you know this is only going to work one time i think i saw jolt cola trying to jump on the being an <laughs> asshole bandwagon and it, yeah. It's not going to work uh, the second time because, you know, once the first transgression of the norm is the one that counts, that's the one that people are going to notice. After that, it's a bandwagon effect. You know what is interesting? In a way, it's very much a Donald Trump style of brand management, but in a different space, right? You're getting yeah. attention by insulting and seeming boorish, but like at least yeah. you're getting attention. Like the fact that we've been discussing moon pies for like six, seven minutes on this podcast and, you know, people are doing it all over the place. I mean, I hadn't even thought about moon pie and half of the game. Yeah, Kasich would have offered you a coupon for a free, uh, a free moon pie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, 
like I I feel like I have to interject here because I do not like I like I take umbrage at the fact that you are actually putting Trump and moon pies in the same category because let me tell you I actually think that moon pie account I think even the insulting tweets are actually intelligent and that's the difference <laughs> well okay so but 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 Trump is good as an insult comic. I mean, I, I don't want him as president, but I do have to admit that he's very witty. And, you know, and he, and he can, like he would have been good on a Comedy Central roast. Yeah. And in fact, he was on a Comedy Central roast where famously people were allowed to make fun of anything but his net worth. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the guy actually is talented at uh, slinging a barb. Uh you know, which is not necessarily what you want in a commander in chief, but you got to get the devil. The leader of the free world. Yeah, he is. A, I don't know. I, you know what I mean. I, I actually, he is there. He is lowbrow. Where I can't believe yeah. I'm saying a moon pie is actually relatively <laughs> highbrow. Don't blame me. I voted for the chocolate marshmallow. <laughs> Oh my, can I just tell you, there were a hundred things that I would have wanted to talk about. Like, uh, man, like like uh, Cornell West and Tennessee oh, Coates, Lord. that one I followed yeah. all weekend. And I don't even know what's going on with that. But like, I don't understand the criticism that he, I mean, I'm not plugged into this at all. But like, how is he neoliberal? Like, it didn't even make sense well, to me. Well, so I kind of feel like, uh, I mean, if we're going to get into it, even just for a little bit, I think that 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 West, like, criticism of Coates is that, is that Coates pays way, way, way too much attention to whiteness and white supremacy and, um, and not enough attention, at least according to West, to um, the sort the sort of underlying mechanisms through which whiteness and white supremacy gets to maintain its power. Um, and so things like Wall Street, um, things like, you know, capitalism run amok, um, things like the military industrial complex. And these are things that I think Wes says that Coates um, seems to be, at, especially at this moment, to be, you know, uniquely, just at least in terms of his following, um, able to comment on, but he doesn't. And that's number one. And number two, he basically, he feels as though, number one, Barack Obama, like, was a neoliberal president. And the fact that Coates, Coates doesn't critique Right, um, Obama's embrace of neoliberalism um, actually like makes him like complicit in sort of you know the damages the damages to people of color and and the poor both in the United States and around the world that he sees the Obama presidency actually helped to further. How, how is Obama neoliberal though? I mean, he he like fought to implement heavy regulations and but that is well i I don't know i mean you're an expert on comparative you know economic regimes and everything but i i i don't like people using the word neoliberal like it's just an insult and i don't like people you know i i view neoliberal as broadly like the grand thrust of almost all policy since thatcher uh or rather starting with thatcher and and by that regard uh, I would say that, uh, you know, Obama's neoliberal because basically all American politicians are neoliberal 
you know, it's the, I mean, it, you, you possibly have an exception with this rise of demagogic populism. Um, and I do think it's interesting to note, by the way, that just, you know, if you go back and you read Polanyi, um, just like the original liberalism created these contradictions, especially in the form of the gold standard that unraveled with um, demagoguery and eventually war and chaos uh, with the Second World War and fascism, uh, but basically the rise of demagoguery and authoritarianism following, uh, you know, the, the, a century of uh, liberalism and uh, a hard money policy. Hmm. You know, in the aftermath of the, you know, uh, I don't know what it was, like three or four decades of neoliberalism uh, with tight market integration, especially in the European Union. Again, hard money policy, especially in the European Union. You have a crash and uh, it, you know, leads to a resurgence of uh, populism and authoritarianism and that sort of thing. Yeah, but like Obama, first of all, Obama had, first of all, Obama didn't run the Fed, but monetary policy was so <laughs> loose that there were like negative real interest rates. He completely re-regulated Wall Street and he tried to establish like a massive- yeah, it, it works better in Europe than it does in, in America, where America's response to um, the, the recession was a loose money policy, which I think was correct. Whereas in uh, Europe, they- you know, they, they tried to have a strong euro, which is nuts, especially for the Southern Europeans. Well, yeah, who knows? There's, there's, I think there's internal dynamics. Like it works oh, for, for Germany. Sure. Right. It doesn't work yeah. for the South. But in any case. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I think the critique of Obama uh, as far as West goes, I think it's it's part personal. Uh-huh. Right. But then, but then also just in terms of, you know, you know, you have a bailout, you have a bailout for corporations, but you don't have a bailout for people who are losing their homes. You know, you give money to corporations, but you don't give, you know, you won't increase the welfare state, yeah, right? I, with the exception, with the exception of the ACA. Yeah, an I, I think you're probably right that there's as much <laughs> to do about who had the best seat at the 2008 inauguration as there is uh, much more than about monetary policy. Yeah, totally. I mean, to say just the ACA, that's like saying, you know, Hitler was cool, except for that shitty thing with the Holocaust and World War II. Like, the ACA was enormous. And he only had two years before the March of Policy yeah. ground down to a halt. Yeah. And it, as- yeah, so the ACA was enormous, but at the same time, one of the critiques of the ACA is that is that it allowed it, it allowed insurance companies like like sort of like way too much power and way too much of an opportunity to make to make money. Um, and some people thinking on the backs of, of the people who then were faced with this mandate and having to have insurance. I don't know. If, if Obama is neoliberal, then like that, that's a use of the term that to me is just devoid of meaning. I'm, yeah. yeah, but isn't but isn't the isn't that the way that word has been thrown about to like mean everything or, and nothing <laughs> and everything is the fault of neoliberalism. Well, like Gabriel said, it's right. like a generic insult. You said that, right, Gabe? It's yeah, like well, just it's, a generic it's both sort a generic insult and a a generic descriptor, right? When I use the term, I'm not using okay. it uh, as a pejorative, but you know, people. It, it, but I do think that it, it it's weird because it gets applied as an insult to everybody to the right of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, yeah. But it also, I think, it accurately does describe you know the vast majority of uh, politicians and the you know. 
I guess it's our uh, framework that even when we regulate, we're regulating within the framework and we're not even thinking about an overhaul because we're just, we're so used to it and we're not even thinking about a bigger, a bigger shift. I think that's yeah, totally and if you're, right. If you're looking in terms of like, neo, so here's how it, it, I, I don't think that there's any contradiction in saying that Obama is neoliberal and that, you know, he did uh, sponsor an expansion of the welfare state, but it was an expansion of the welfare state that was intended to uh, be, you know, like a market creating expansion of the welfare state, right? The big uh, item that put all the emphasis was on was on the exchanges. And, and then on top of that, he also was uh, negotiating free trade treaties. Uh, you know, they didn't get through in mm-hmm. part because in 2016, both candidates decided that the base didn't like it. But, you know, uh, Pacific, um, what was it? The Pacific? Uh, uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific yeah, Partnership. Yeah, the Trans-Pacific, uh, uh, you know, Partnership uh, Trade Treaty was, you know, an expansion of trade. I, I honestly think that that uh, treaty would have been called, would have passed and would have been very popular if people called it the fuck China treaty. Uh, but, you know, Chinese it was just framed as, well, yeah, yeah, but they don't get a vote. They don't have a senator. <laughs> you know? just, so, just about, about trade. Well, one is you, well, now you got your isolation as president. So hope you're all happy. Sure. Not you guys, but you know, and number two is, you know, in, in, in my research, I, I think that trade would actually kept poverty from becoming a much bigger problem. Like the 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 wages that it, I mean yeah. the robots I think are killing jobs way faster than uh, trade was, and if you take a look at consumer prices for the most part they've been falling. I mean we're getting choked by yeah. certain essential products, but I think it's been a tremendous boon to people. Careful yeah, what you wish for. Economists have estimated that Walmart and both the you know and especially and not just Walmart in terms of it having such an efficient retail production but also it having its monopsony power to keep prices low on uh, manufacturers Walmart all by itself accounts for relatively low inflation oh yeah i mean all by itself but i'm saying it's a significant contributor to the low inflation we've seen well retail like they, that does yeah but but to all but to get back yeah. to the original banter um item uh, i mean just and this and this is all the last word i'm going to have on this you know i you know i'm surprised that people are so surprised by this i mean it's not as though this is the first time one black intellectual has come out against another black intellectual. I mean, we could go back, you know, like people often reference Booker T. Washington, you know, versus W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Um, but I think we could even go further back. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that people thought of Harriet Tubman um, as a black intellectual, but she and Frederick Douglass actually had, you know, had at it. Um, you know, even even way back then. And, you know, this is just, you know, I mean, this is just what happens in intellectual spaces. And it's so interesting <laughs> that like when a white intellectual goes at another white intellectual, people are not, are, aren't losing their minds, right? They're like, that's yeah, what know, intellectuals uh, do. I mean, that was Michelle's right? first uh, <laughs> big paper. M- Michelle Lamont's first big paper was how to become a famous intellectual. And a big part of it was basically to have a beef uh-huh. with... Uh, another big mm-hmm. you know i would disagree with that though leslie because anytime there's drama people are chattering 
Yeah. yeah you know, at any time. We're uh, into uh, – the scholastic community loves the drama. Yeah, I remember when I was in grad school or maybe an assistant <laughs> professor, so sometime around 2005, give or take, there was a piece in the New Republic talking about how – and it was basically they got a bunch of quotes from Heckman saying that Levitt was full of shit. Yeah. And, you know, people enjoyed that. And these are two very white guys, yeah. you know. Uh, and, you know, that that was seen as like, ooh, you know, did you see what, uh, you know, Heckman said about Levitt, that it's just cute little experiments that don't actually explain anything. Remember uh, when uh, Louis Quacant took on 10 people in AJS? Yeah. Oh, well, that was like a multi-generational yes, fight because yes. then you had like, uh, you know, Louis Quacant, you know, took on the field and then, uh, you know, um, <laughs> And then you had like Mitch uh, getting even by attacking Kleinenberg and all that sort of thing. And it was like, it, yeah, it was, it was like reading about a Sicilian vendetta that lasts a generation. If it works for yeah. Moon Pie, why not for sociologists? You know, it's the same strategy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know what? I, I guess I mean you're 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 right. I guess the difference is that. Um, on Black Twitter, everything seems crazier. Yeah. So <laughs> and, and more and more intense. And I didn't hear people talking about Heckman v. Levitt on Black Twitter. Yeah, but this so. was a decade before Black Twitter. And I'm not even on Twitter. So <laughs> Yasmin said something interesting. She was saying, like, it works for Moon Pie, why not sociologists? I just realized that it did work for sociologists, and I'm the one who did it. Um, so when social science first launched. Uh, when so when sociological science first launched, uh, the journal had two uh, Twitter feeds, uh, one being uh, the main sociological science feed and the other being uh, Editor Bain. And uh, early on, those were mostly me. Uh, nowadays, I think they're mostly Olaf Sorensen. Um, and, you know, it, it was all early on. It was just jokes about the um, the peer review process and making fun of peer reviewers and how other journals work and they take a long time, but they were very kind of, had that kind of nasty, aggressive sense of humor. And, uh, some people didn't like it, but it got a big profile and got attention for the journal uh, pretty early on. So uh, the item I wanted to talk about is Star Wars. And more to the point that I haven't seen Star Wars, but I really want to. And this is not because I expect it to be good. It's because everything I've heard, for, at least from the people I trust, is that it's awful. Um, and it's not that I have a morbid fascination with seeing awful movies. It's that I really want to be able to read and understand the criticism of it and get the jokes, the jokes about, you know, slow cooking a pork and all that sort of thing. And, um, and so I want to see the movie, even though I think I won't enjoy it because I think uh, it will help me enjoy all the conversation and discourse around it. And this is a special case of the network externalities argument for consumption of the arts. So um, it, back in the 80s, uh, Adler had this article on, uh, I think it was Adler. Uh, anyway, there was an article, an econ article in the 80s that was on um, the economics of the arts and how the argument was that talking about a piece of art is complementary to actually consuming it. And because things that are popular have more discourse around them, it makes sense to harmonize on the popular things because then it increases the complementarity of the conversation, which is ambient, and um, the consumption if you choose the popular things because there's lots of people to talk about. And I realize this is exactly why I want to see what is apparently an awful movie. Um, and I hated Force Awakens. 
Uh, I, I thought Rogue One was great, but I hated Force Awakens. I'm expecting this to be more of the same, but I still want to see it because I want to see why it's awful and I want to be able to enjoy all the podcasts and reviews and things like that. Like, I'm not going to listen to the weekly substandard, which, you know, I, I, it's a great podcast because they're talking about it in this next episode until after I see it. So I have to see it so I can listen to that podcast. So Joe and Yasmin, can you recall uh, something that you've consumed, like what, a piece of art, whether it be going to a museum to see an exhibition or a book or a movie that you, that you, decided you needed to be part of that experience even though everything you read about ah. it was bad because you needed to be able yeah, that's a good one. to <laughs> talk about it well i want to see the room uh, <laughs> i know i was thinking about that yeah. yeah and and that's a good point because the disaster artist it, it, since the disaster artist came out the room went up to like number one selling just dvd on amazon no way. Yeah, because it's only available on DVD. Literally number one, but the sales spiked because of the disaster artist. So that's another example of discourse about a piece of art in the form of another movie increases the demand for that uh, you know piece of art that it's commenting on. I'll say that like I just refuse. One is I loved uh, The Force Awakens, and I refuse to believe that it's bad. I'm going Taylor oh, Swift on. on this. I'm not listening to the haters. Ray is the biggest Mary Sue in the history of literature. She could just, you What's know, that? she's the biggest Mary Sue in the in the history of literature. She uh, or art. She, I mean, she just like she goes from just being this like scavenger. Okay, great, she's earning a living, and, and then like she instantly learns about some piece of the force, and then she's like the best in the history of the force at it instantly. She doesn't have a training wow. process. She doesn't have to carry a midget around on her back through a swamp for six months to learn it. No, nah, man, it's the force chose her. Sometimes it is just about nature, Gabriel. That's how to convince people not to like it is uh, tell them that it's it implies a very strong heritability coefficient. And with twins, nonetheless. There's, a, there's, there's twins involved in this. Right? I mean, at the core of Star Wars is fraternal twins. Right. Sometimes it's the other way. It's when you think about like things like Star Wars or Titanic or Braveheart, you know, from, I guess, my childhood of movies you had to see. Wait, Braveheart <laughs> is from your childhood? Yeah, totally. And Titanic? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I went oh, as a kid. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like not seeing it becomes the thing, that you're in that select group of people who haven't seen it and... Wait, so that means you feel left out or you feel like contrarian, that like you're too cool to see it? Exactly. You're too cool to see it. It's funny. My girlfriend has the same attitude about James Bond movies. Like she's never oh, seen one. Nice. So now she refuses to see them because of the, it, it makes for a better story that she's never seen one. That's how I felt about Avatar. Like I never saw it because it was like. Well, in Avatar, you were right. Avatar was so awful. It's not even worth seeing to see people talking about how awful it is. Well, I liked Avatar. So there. <laughs> I Joe, I love you, but we're never going to the movies together. Apparently not. Well, you're a movie snob. You were always an art snob. But like, I will say, I will say this. Uh, I'm also looking forward to it just so I don't have to avoid things online. Like, I, I, you know how you were talking about how you're uh, um, uh, avoiding the weekly substandard, which is a great podcast that you introduced me to, and I'm grateful for that. But, like, I'm tired of worrying about being on Twitter and getting spoilers. Yeah. So. Well, that's it. Again, that's the network externalities. Yeah. yeah I mean, theory. it doesn't have great to theory. be that you hate the piece of art. It's just that, you know, you, you realize that the discourse about the art and the art itself are, are tightly related, and the one makes the other more enjoyable. 
I want to talk about regulating language and uh, the banned words from Health and Human Services. Um, the Trump administration has banned the use of certain words in official documents from Health and Human Services. And Wrong. Uh, on Wrong. Go get. Well, I mean, do you want? Well, do you want me to let you tell the wrong story in completion and then correct you, or do you want me to <laughs> no, jump in? And- <laughs> no, no, just jump in. It wasn't in. the Trump administration; it was career civil servants, and uh, they. So it, it, there were no political appointees involved in the this meeting about uh, style, uh, you know, okay. writing style. Okay. You mean to tell me that, you know, run of the mill civil servants were like, we have to ban the word fetus and transgender yeah. oh, with no consideration it. of uh, political. Well, ban from what? I, I do, you know, do you know from what they were discouraging the usage of those terms? I, I, I read it was in all official documents. No, it's not in like research reports or anything like that. It's not in, you know, that if the CDC writes a white paper on preventing influenza that you can't use the term fetus or whatever. Um, it's specifically in uh, documents that are intended to be read by Congress. Okay. So uh, in... Uh, okay, documents. so that's not important? Well, it's important, but I'm saying... In the in the scientific quasi-scientific documents, the scientists can talk however they like. In okay, the, so in that's the, a... in the budget justifications that they send to Congress, the career civil servants decided that it would make more sense to not use terms that they thought might alienate members of Congress. How crazy is that? Right? So you can't use the words vulnerable. You can't use the word diversity. <laughs> you can't use evidence based. Okay, so there were okay, wait, 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 wait. Evidence based does not mean that they don't want to say evidence based because they think that you know you should just be going on what it says in the Bible. No, I, no, no, I, no, I, to say. no, I totally, but, I totally get that. Evidence based, but they, they, they want. Here's what it says in the New York Times. Uh, in instead of evidence based, the style guide suggested. Uh, the CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. So they, they're not saying they, basically the reason that they said not to use evidence base is they thought it had become a meaningless buzzword that was overused. Like, you know, people would say paradigm or disrupt, you know, so like imagine that you're writing a business prospectus and they tell you don't use the word disrupt or disruptive in this. It's not because they don't think there's such a thing as disruptive innovation. It's because it's become or a cliche that people is. overuse well beyond its applicability. Like transgender? Yeah. Gabe, this does not make that sense. Was, okay, so, there's two separate issues. So one was the things that they thought had become cliches and buzzwords and were overused and people were using them uh, without thinking about them. And that was things like evidence-based. And then the other were things like transgender and fetus, where they wanted to make sure that they weren't uh, pissing off members of Congress. It, specifically uh, in documents that were intended for being read by Congress. Okay, so like, it, okay, it, so, you can so still I, say uh, transgender in a research report. Oh, I get that. So, so here's the thing. So, okay, so so evidence based and science based, those are both buzzwords that people don't understand what it means, like, or they're cliche. They're and cliches. So you can't I think use it's them. to describe it as they're cliches. <laughs> That's just that. So is that why diversity isn't put in there? Because that's a cliche. Yes, it was on the same list. Diversity and evidence base were on the same list in terms of they were cliches. People use them without thinking. And they said that if you and basically the uh, the CDC high level career civil servants said that if you want to convey that idea, don't just throw it in there. But, you know, 
explain what you mean in other wording so that it's it's clear what you mean and it's not just like a buzzword that you're throwing in, like throwing salt into the soup. Gabriel, this sounds like uh, a National Review sort of explain away of a ridiculous policy. Well, like if I, I did. I have in front of me two pieces of paper I printed out once. One is, in fact, from National Review and from you, <laughs> who I told you guys was good last week. All right. And, yes, uh, and, you uh, did. And number two is from the New York Times. Okay. Yeah. And, and both you know, and the New York, and the National Review and the New York Times agree on this. That they, they basically it was about career civil servants coming up with a style guide for documents relating to Congress. And A, there were several words that they basically said, let's not alienate Congress by making them think we're a politicized agency. You could still do and then the B, let's not use cliches. But it has nothing to do with the actual research product. Okay, first you can still say anything you wasn't like. Wasn't that that was my understanding, though, is that was sent out by a Trump appointee, right? No, and, and not according to the New York Times. Well, you know what? We put it up. And, and not according to the National Review, if you care well, if you trust I mean, that or not. But I'm saying, uh, I'm saying both of them. And, and by the way, National Review is not exactly a Trumpist journal, right? I mean, they, they famously. Yeah, but it's a they, partisan Republican one. That, that is true. And, and, but I'm saying both of them say that it was a career and, civil service. And it's like, okay, so I mean, and then uh, as far as, so imagine Democrats would uh, threaten to destroy any department that said the word capitalism. And so they decide, well, let's not say capitalism in any reports or markets. And then you conclude, well, it was their free choice to not, I'm, I'm saying this is assuming. No, no, no this is, a, this is a, but, the, but Congress hadn't said that specifically right i mean there's definitely and i'm not gonna i I agree with you that there is uh, clear signals from substantial parts of the republican party that they don't want to hear language that sounds like a pro-choice dialect and um and that they you know uh, the transgender issue is not exactly popular with the republican party so i agree that those signals are sent so it's not like these cdc people are just imagining things but it's this is an attempt to pander it's no, not it's, it's not a request right and i'll, I'll give you another example so uh, i had an nsf grant uh i wrote my book on it the the title of the grant that i submitted was something like reggaeton enters the mainstream and then my program officer said why don't we change that to something like lessons from the radio industry and you know i i think what she was getting at is let's not annoy congress but you know what i still wrote the same book that I would have written otherwise. I still did the same research. And actually, ironically enough, her title turned out to be the more accurate title, the more closely reflected my uh, what was actually in the book. Like the actual book has a title very similar to that of the grant. Still worrisome though, because how would you do something about um, like a fetus without calling it a fetus? Because they're just justifying the, the, this is for budget justification at a very high level for the whole agency. I don't know. I think this would result in self-surveillance, right? Like I would change my research. You can still do this where you can say like, you know, prenatal or something like that, or, uh, you know, prenatal exposure or exposure to pregnant women. You know, I mean, you or could, you... unborn baby. Yeah, that's what they want. That's what they want. Unborn baby. That's the point. No, of but I'm saying. <laughs> I think it's the self-surveillance and auto-control on the part of yeah. like uh, researchers that worries me more because words are powerful. And once we start calling a fetus something else, it's <laughs> right. These are not researchers. These are these are career administrators. I, I, listen, I would agree yeah, with yeah, you. No, Gabe, Gabriel, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. Right? I totally get it. They're like, dude, 
like we feel like we're in this environment where we're under attack. They're they're already talking about cutting funding sure. for us. So let's try not to piss people <laughs> off. And so let's not use these certain words, right? And just so people are just like, okay, right? You're not trying to piss us off. You're not trying to pander to liberals. Okay, maybe we will rethink cutting this program or, or, or thinking that the research that you do is lefty nonsense. Sure. I totally, I totally get that. But then I also get what Yasmin is saying is that mm-hmm. like words have consequences. Well, I, right? I, I feel like there's a big difference between, so if this actually had been a style guide that was saying, when you write up your scientific results to send to a journal, don't say these things, then I would be a hundred percent hair on fire, pissed off like everybody else is. But this is just for like writing your, you know, your little le- letter to Congress saying, you know, renew our budget. And you're not exactly going into details of specific scientific findings in your letter to Congress anyway. So it's like, I, I feel like this is a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, it is, it is objectively and like substantively different than when the Bush administration basically you know, sort of put the brakes on language around climate change, right? Because that was actually, that that did have to do with official documents, right? Like official research that had come out of government agencies studying climate change. So I, I don't know the details of that, but I'll take your word for I, it. I, all I want to say is that the basic facts, as I understand it, is there are senior. There is a senior management at Health and Human Services uh, that are led by political appointees of the Trump administration, and they've issued a directive from on high, telling their people that they are to you to avoid using certain words that I don't see the uh, I don't see the uh, factual problems with them, and I don't see them as being particularly loaded from my point of view. For example, the words diversity or transgender or science-based. And I wouldn't imagine that there would have to be regulations put out if it were a consensus view or if it were seen as common sense. But there's a there's a, a ban from on top, and on top is made up of political appointees. And no, but it's not. A, a you're, you're right about all that except the point about political appointees. The, if, you, if you read the New York Times, you read National Review, they, they describe it as all being from the career civil servants. <laughs> well, let's, you know, let's leave it at that because I hate fact arguments. You know, that's something that, <laughs> you know, you, like we can, we'll let people look it up. But no, where, where I agree with you is that they are trying to pander to their probably accurate perceptions of what will make Congress happy. Now, now the, this other issue of there's certain cliches that they want to avoid. Um, none of us have read, you know, hundreds of pages of CDC documents and rolled our eyes saying, oh, Jesus Christ, evidence-based again. You know, uh, so I don't think any of us are in a position to judge whether um, these are cliches that should be, you know, uh, circumlocuted. Um, but on these issue of, you know, basically, um, politically loaded words that might piss off Congress, uh, I do think it's accurate to say that the career civil servants are trying to pander to their expectations of what will make Congress happen. And now we turn to Yasmin Besson Casino from the Sociology Department at Montclair State in New Jersey. She has a new book that just came out this week, 
The Cost of Being a Girl from Temple University Press. Welcome, Yasmeen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi. You want to get us started by telling us about your new book? Sure. Um, I was always interested in the wage gap, and I wondered why we cannot explain the remaining part of the wage gap. And, and we know the stories about why women make less. You know, women have babies, they work at home, there's childcare. And I wondered, you know, I looked around and almost everywhere I see teenagers working. And when we study the wage gap, almost every study on the wage gap looks at the adult wage gap, you know, after 18, after the completion of education, and when we actually start our quote unquote real jobs. And I wanted to see what happens early on, you know, when they're, because uh, according to the Department of Labor, young people in this country start working as early as 12 and 13. So what happens when you're 12 and 13? Do you get paid less? And I found that when you're 12 and 13, you make the same amount of money. Boys and girls make the exact same amount of money. But as they move into their uh, more employee type jobs, 14 and 15, I saw the emergence of the first wage gap and it became wider with age. And that's what my study was mostly about. So, so my understanding of um, the wage gap among adults is that almost all of it is mediated by a mommy gap and by occupational sorting. Um, and that there's very little, once you control for um, occupational sorting, and um, and you just restrict the sample to single women. Um, was obviously fertility is not really an issue here. Um, was this kind of an occupational sorting issue, or are you finding that even within the same occupation, teenagers have a wage gap? Uh, both actually, because I wanted to find this almost a gender utopia. You know, before the mommy gap, before mm -hmm. before everything else kicks in. But uh, twelve and thirteen year olds, I saw it, both between gendering and uh, occupational sorting. So you see, the first source was girls stay in babysitting jobs and boys move into more retail jobs as they become available. But even within, you know, babysitting, you see a big gap between uh, boys and girls. Tell us, how, tell us about uh, your findings, your empirical findings. Well, first, I found that uh, when they're 12 and 13, they get the same amount of money. And as they move into uh, more retail type jobs and service sector jobs, we see the emergence of the wage gap, which widens with age. Then I started talking to babysitters. And among babysitters, the first trend I saw was that there is a big interest in male babysitters, especially like taking care of little boys, mostly mm -hmm. sports. Okay, so these are kind of specialist providers, because that surprised me, because I, I assumed that babysitters, much like gynecologists, would be something where there'd be a strong uh, preference for female labor. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. It depends no. on the gender of the child, especially, no. you know, for little boys, uh, this is a very specialized occupation. A lot of parents are looking for male. <laughs> Leslie, is that yes. your experience? For whatever reason. And what's interesting is there's also the scarcity problem, right? So because boys are less likely to be on the market as babysitters, that increases their premium even more, right? And they're sought after. Yeah. Because they're male babysitters. But also, I mean, their job description is different. They get paid more, but they're not asked to do other stuff. Whereas the girls, you know, can they drop off this Netflix? Can they pick up the dry cleaning? They had to do a lot more. To get less. To get a lot less. So is this a pure supply and demand story? Or do you think that there's something uh, deeper going on with uh, how uh, boys and girls are treated as employees? Uh, it's something definitely deeper. I, I had this uh, experiment where I presented uh, potential parents with uh, two scenarios. It was Molly and Jake 
both are great babysitters and they ask for a raise. And what happens when they ask for a raise? And I had um, two experimental conditions. In one condition, the babysitter is really attached to your child and goes over and beyond and, you know, brings like cookies every time. And in the second condition, they don't care. They just show up. So Molly, when she is not attached to your child, nobody liked Molly because she wasn't a nice person. And in the case where she brings cookies, still nobody liked Molly because she's asking for you know, more money. She's rated as more manipulative and not very nice. And in either case, she didn't get a raise. Whereas Jake, Jake always got a raise. So, so this sounds a little bit like the, the general finding that you see in various areas of um, how care work is gendered. And people expect care to have kind of a, uh, a non-pecuniary intrinsic motivation and therefore not to have a lot of uh, wage compensation. At least for girls and women. But not for yeah, men. That's right. The only condition where they didn't like Jake was when Jake was making you know cookies and was attaching to the child and... That was seen as, you know, Jake is obviously asking for money. But either way, Jake got the money. Whereas for Molly, there's no options, right? She should really care about the child. But if she's caring about the child, she shouldn't ask for money. You know, that's kind of interesting how we have sort of different motives attached. Because I see that uh, in my household, you know, I, I, I've been a pretty active parent. And as the, as the father in the playground... Uh, boy, you get treated very nicely. And I often hear mothers complain that like the slightest thing that a dad does in public will get, you know, a rousing uh, <laughs> round of kudos, whereas women are just expected to be playing I, with their I child. can totally <laughs> attest to that fact. I can totally attest to that <laughs> fact. And, uh, and yeah, the other thing too is, so I don't know if you know this, but there is an expanding market for male nannies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and there's also a premium for them, but I'll tell you this, I have never seen a male nanny be mistaken, right. Or, 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 or be thought of as the nanny. They always think the male nanny is like the dad, right. Or the big brother, right. They don't think of that. I've been mistaken for my kids' nannies multiple (laughs) times. So, oh so even when I'm doing a great job, like I'm doing a great job as a mom, there are, people still assume I'm getting paid for it. Yeah, I remember you talking about that all the way in grad school. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, um, and I've had the same experience Joe's talking about. Of like, it, it's even kind of weird to me of like, you know, just doing what I, I consider kind of a normal amount of parenting, and people are like, oh, it's so good to see a dad here, and I'm like, well, why wouldn't I be here? Yeah. <laughs> I my partner, he gets all the credit for it, and, and you know, if he's he brings our son to work. He's a great dad and, you know, great worker, but not for me, right? That's just expected. Yeah, they see you making hot dogs in the backyard and everybody's giving you a round of it. Well, it's very edifying. Like, I appreciate all of the positive reinforcement I get. But is it a question of uh, the bar is set low for men because they're just not doing their job in general? And so people are trying to positively reinforce the, the first movers. No, not just that. I, I think the uh, job description is different. A lot of when you talk to a lot of the parents, they think, "Oh, that's his expertise. We value his time. We pay for it. He'll be here for only two hours, and they respect those boundaries." Whereas with you know female babysitters, it's not the same. So you see, like the moms and dads talking to the girls for half an hour before, half an hour after unpaid unpaid labor, and they're asked to do other stuff, which isn't a part of their 
part of their gig. Uh, in your book, you talk about the concept of aesthetic labor. Can you explain that to us? Absolutely. I, that's one of the changes I saw with a lot of uh, teenage workers, uh, especially working in uh, retail and service sector jobs, where in order to find a job, which we thought was, you know, basically with a pulse test, you have a pulse, you get the job. It's not like that anymore. A lot of them have a very hard time finding jobs and keeping jobs, and especially with uh, uh, workers of color. Uh, a lot of them said, you show up for a job, they're told, oh, you just don't have the right look. You don't look like our brand. And they're expected to dress like the brand, get a store card, and spend as much money as they possibly can to be be the brand. And a lot of them get in so much debt trying to just keep a job. So they're expected to look the part, is what you're saying, and 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 spend money to look apart, and that that demand's not placed on on boys. Not so much. A lot of the boys said, you know, it's for the j- job interview. I had to dress up, but that was kind of it. Whereas for girls, it was it was expected. It was constant. So every week they would have to buy a new T-shirt and new flip flops, and and by the end of the, I spoke to a girl who was working at uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, and. And after two years, she was so happy to be out of there that she said, I wish I never worked there because I accumulated so much debt. It rivals my student loans. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot. That's a lot of T-shirts. <laughs> you know, in the past several weeks, we've been talking a lot about uh, sexual harassment. Uh, and, and, and you you talk about uh, sexual harassment becoming a thing early in a girl's career. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've spoken to several um Uh, workers who talked about, especially in the restaurant industry, especially in apparel, they talked about sexual harassment or harassment in general uh, being a part of their jobs. But a lot of them said they wouldn't report it because it's not their real job. So this was only a a part-time job to them. And in the future, oh, if this was my real job, I might do something about it, but not now. But it is still a job. It's not, you know, it's not surreal. It's still a real job. And I think as we do this, we socialize our workers into the problems of the workplace. Like, I actually think that's an explaining way, right? I mean, I remember, like, when I was in high school, I had a job in a neurosurgical lab. And um, the head of the lab, um, he used to pinch me all the time, right? And it was always in response to, like, some kind of thing, like... Sometimes it was because I would say something witty, right? And then he'd pinch. So he wasn't testing the No, no. And then he'd pinch me. But then sometimes it would be in response to, like, he would get close and get really close. And then he'd check himself. And then his fit. So then he'd pinch me. Right. And I I remember. That's just weird. Well, it it was his. His trying to not sexually harass me, right? It was his way of touching me in a way that he thought was appropriate, which there shouldn't have been any touching anyway. Um, And then I remember one night he took me out to dinner, which I was like, okay. And, um, And then he brought me up to his, he brought me up to his apartment, right? You know, I was supposed to come and pick something up and uh and it was i mean it was creepy like you know i was 16 years old and he was i think 38 and and it was re- right and it was also the kind of thing he was 
Like he was a reluctant, but wanting <laughs> to be sexual harasser. Right. And, and, and I don't even want to laugh, but like, it's just weird. No, no. And that's the thing is that, is that even in situations where you get a good guy, right. Or a guy who thinks he's really good. Um, sometimes it's really hard for him to resist these kinds of power dynamics. Right. Um, and, you know, like, fortunately for me, right. You know, um, you know, I was a really snide, snarky teenager, right. Like that's like a good way to disarm many a man. Um, and, um, and number two, um, you know, I kind of had my wits about me. I was like, I see what's going on here and um, made sure the door was not locked. But I think that this is a thing that is incredibly common for teenage girls. And the reason why we don't report it isn't so much that it's, okay, this is just my part-time job. I mean, of course it is, right? Your full-time job is to be is to be a student. But I think it's because we tend to think that we're in control, right? And I think it's only an only at the point where we're we realize that we actually don't have as much control as we thought we did that we think we should report it. But then even then we get angry at ourselves for allowing things to get out of control. So well, I want to compliment Yasmin because we've been talking about sexual harassment for like the last 14 weeks. And this is the first time you've told us that story. So something about her inspired you to yeah. finally tell us about this. Uh, you, know, uh, you know what I've guy. God, you know, through through the past several weeks, I've realized a lot of guys are into a lot of weird stuff. Oh, that yeah. I had no, like pinching and masturbating into plants. Like, are these things? I didn't even. Who was a football guy who um, was accused of sexual harassment? Oh. Apparently his thing is he wanted to shave women's legs. Whoa. And, uh, and, and it actually made me kind of uh, appreciate in a weird way that at least, you know, Roger Ailes <laughs> was a scumbag, but uh, he was, you know, very conventionally scumbag. Conventional? <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things like, you know, you know, surprise, watch me masturbate. You know, it's like it's, it's both uh, evil and weird, you know, whereas he was just evil, you know. So what can we do? Like, first of all, we're all uh, I think there's uh, not a son between the three of us. Uh, host, uh, <laughs> and although Leslie is a very seasoned parent of daughters, uh, for those of us who are a little bit more ignorant, what do you like? What would you recommend to us? Like, how can we uh, be good stewards to our daughters in light of what you've learned in, in your project? Guy, I found it really interesting that the parents were great. A lot of these girls talked about how good their parents were, and they had positive messages at school, but they go to work and they see the problems of work. And the problem wasn't the parenting or what we tell them at school. They just got mixed messages, right? And they didn't trust the parents or the schools anymore because they were told, you know, you can be anything you want and the workplace is great. And unless we change the workplace, nothing is going to change. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think the one, I think the, I think the one follow-up question I have, I think um, has to do less with the, with the workplace in in general, but more about youth in the workplace, right? Because I because I I kind of feel like like teens, um, especially teenage girls, are hit with this double whammy, right? You know, so there is age discrimination. I mean, usually when we think about age discrimination, we're th- we we we're almost always just talking about older people. Um, 
But teens are totally discriminated against like all the time, right? So that's number one. So they're dealing with that, but then there's also like sort of gender issues to deal with as well, right? How do we, like, how do we create a space for young people that, um, is a positive training ground, right? For their future employment, um, without, you know, without uh, having the sort of inherent inequalities that are baked in, um, basically, as soon as they enter into the labor force? That's a really good question. No, they're socialized into all the problems of the workplace the minute they they start working, right? And it's not just about gender, it's the intersections of gender and race that a lot of, you know, girls of color Mm -hmm. talked about um, issues in uh, retail jobs, that they're told they don't fit the brand and they face a lot of discrimination, but they internalize them. A lot of them are told, you know, this is what the workplace is like and I can't ask for more money because a lot of them know, even though I know I can't, I also know what's going to happen if I do ask for money. So until we change the workplace, I don't, I don't think anything parents can do or, you know, we can do at schools, but we need to restructure workplaces to make them more child friendly. <laughs> So, so you don't recommend my going down to my child's place of employment and saying, look, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And now a word from editor Bain. There's a reason this review process is the worst hell on earth. Hope. Every author who submitted here has imagined a conditional accept. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Yasmin Besson Casino from Montclair State. Her new book, The Cost of Being a Girl, is out with Temple University Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thank you.